It's Friday afternoon. We've locked the door because I eat Waffle House hash browns this morning and no one should be around me for at least four hours after I do that. And also because it's time for another edition of our weekly podcast, Tales from the Brown Desk. I'm Jake Rigney of Rigney Law, LLC. With me as usual is my partner, wife, and the only reason I can ever find a mask to wear, Cassie Rigney. The poor soul tasked with wrangling our enormous egos is our host, Terry Ohm. Friendly reminder, Tales from the Brown Desk is a free-flowing conversation involving two foul-mouthed attorneys. It may include graphic descriptions of sexual activity, violence, and digressions on top of digressions. It may not be suitable for children, parents, dentists, tooth fairies, Fancy Nancy, and especially Nancy Reagan. Listener discretion is advised. Here's Terry. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jake. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm 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 about as bad as I can be for somebody who just ate Waffle House hash browns because that puts everyone in a great mood. <laughs> <laughs> Hi Cassie, how are you today? Uh, hi Terry, I'm okay. Good. Are you looking forward to a three day weekend? I am. Me too. So today we're going to continue our series: a walk through the criminal justice system in Indiana. Last week, we talked about sentencing and touched on a little bit of modifying a sentence. And this week, we're going to continue our adventure through the swamp and take the next step, which I believe is the appeal process. Makes sense. How long would a defendant have to appeal a verdict? Um, Typically, the notice of appeal has to be filed with the appellate court within 30 days of the final judgment. Um. In a criminal case, that would be the sentencing hearing. So 30 days after the sentencing hearing, an an attorney or a person, if they're going to do it themselves, pro se, has to file a notice of appeal. A notice of appeal is about a two, sometimes maybe I think three-page document. You might even be able to squeeze it all into one page that just basically says, hey, we're appealing, everybody. (laughs) And the appeals court uses it to sort of start their own case, which gets its own different cause number, and um, is sort of dealt with in motions practice until there are oral arguments, if if there are oral arguments. So when somebody appeals um, a verdict from a state court, where does their appeal go? Well, it goes to the Court of Appeals first, and then it potentially up to the Supreme Court. And what all is involved in an appeal? So you file the notice, then that starts the new case at the Court of Appeals. Right, and then typically... After that, the next thing is they give the appellant, the uh, the person appealing, they give them a deadline for filing a brief. And the brief essentially will set out the grounds for your appeal. Along with the brief, you also have to create an appendix, which is a very long set of essentially references. So you have to get a transcript of the trial, if there was a trial. Um, or of any other hearing that's relevant. Um, and that's actually sort of the first thing you have to do. You, you have to do that, and then from there you have 30 days once the, the court reporter completes that. And then you you create the appendix and write your brief and file it all. The appendix has all the different things that you're pointing to, proving that what you're saying is what happened. And then after that, the state will have 30 days to respond with their own brief, then the appellant, that is the person appealing, again, gets to can 
file a reply brief if they want, and then the Court of Appeals rules uh, on the issues. How many judges are looking at these briefs when they're filed? Is it one judge like in the in the trial courts? Uh, no, it's it's three. Um, so the process by which the three judges are assigned, I'll be honest, I don't know. But there are three judges that are uh, looking at your appeal and trying to decide whether it has merit or not. And then one of them will write an opinion when the case is over. And the other two will either join in the opinion or concur in the opinion, or one of them potentially can dissent. But they basically take a vote. Do you know what the purpose is of having three judges? I mean, when you go higher up, I mean, I'm not aware of any trial court that operates with more than one judge. But as you go up, yeah, I mean, well, it's a law and it's practicing and, you know, it's not hard numbers, you know, so they want three legal minds to evaluate the issues. I mean, this stuff is complicated. Can you submit new evidence on appeal? No, you can point them to the evidence that exists but you cannot create new evidence to present on appeal. There is a different process for that, and I I think we'll get to that. But um, for the appeal, you are stuck with the record that was made at the trial court proceeding, and you're stuck making your arguments based on the things that happened, and and in particular, the things that, that were objected to. And that's one of the reasons why having a good trial attorney is important. Because if the trial attorney does not object to things that happen during the trial, you can't appeal on those grounds, generally. You can't say, well, you know, the state elicited hearsay evidence that they shouldn't have been able to elicit. If your attorney didn't object for hearsay, the Court of Appeals says, sorry, you didn't raise it in the trial court. We're not going to consider it now. You didn't give the trial court a chance to rule on this issue, so we're not going to hold it against them. It's potential that the failure to object or something like that could amount to ineffective assistance of counsel, and that challenge would be available on the appeal. However, people have to keep in mind the fact that you lost at trial doesn't make your attorney incompetent. And there are all different kinds of reasons why an attorney may or may not object to a particular piece of evidence and there's not you know there's not a bright line it's not a hundred percent you know right or wrong in any given situation yeah and ineffective assistance is actually not a claim you usually make on appeal Um, if anyone out there is listening and thinking well i had an appeal and they didn't raise ineffective assistance that's that's great the rigney say they should have no that's not what we're saying in fact they the appeals court very much prefers if you don't do that on direct appeal and that you save that for post-conviction relief. And there's a good reason for that. The reason is that in the post-conviction relief proceeding, you can add evidence. You can create new evidence. So you can call that lawyer, that trial court lawyer, to the stand and ask them questions about what they did and why they did it so that Everyone has a better idea of, you know, a better understanding of what was going through the lawyer's mind. If he had a strategic reason for not objecting, then that's not ineffective assistance. They don't judge strategic decisions like that. Now, if he says, you know what, I don't know, that was stupid, I should have objected. Well, then maybe you do have ineffective assistance. But because on direct appeal, you can't add new evidence, there's usually not a very good record for an ineffective assistance claim. And so because of that, they very much prefer if you wait and do that on 
on PCR and they'll punish you for doing it on appeal. They'll say, by the way, since you raised this on appeal, you don't get to raise it in a PCR now. This is this is litigated. This is the rule of the case. So in order to raise it on direct appeal, you have to have something that's just blatant and obvious and just sort of goes beyond the pale where every, anyone would look at it and just say, that's obviously ineffective assistance. So what happens if you appeal to the Court of Appeals and the judges don't rule in your favor? Is there another step you can take? Can you appeal even higher or is your case dead? You can ask for the Supreme Court to look at it, the Supreme Court of the state of Indiana to look at it. Do you have to ask the Court of Appeals or do they look at any appeal filed? No, in, in Indiana, in criminal cases, uh, you have an absolute right to appeal your conviction. So every criminal case that results in a conviction, at trial anyway, can be appealed. Uh, everyone has that right in Indiana. But you don't have the right to go all the way to the Supreme Court with it. So if the Indiana Court of Appeals sides with the trial court and the state and against you, you can ask the Indiana Supreme Court to look at it by filing a petition for transfer. And if they say no as well, then you're kind of done. Unless you have a federal issue and you can convince the U.S. Supreme Court to look at it. But obviously that's very rare. There are thousands of cases decided every day in the United States and the U.S. Supreme Court takes, what, like maybe half a dozen criminal cases a year, maybe even less. It's pretty rare for a person to find themselves all the way up in the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the cases I prosecuted made it to the Indiana Supreme Court. And one of the cases that my boss prosecuted made it to the uh, made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But those are both pretty rare. What kind of issue was that one that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court? So my old boss, his name is Mark Hollingsworth, he prosecuted a guy and I think it was for murder, but I don't remember for sure anymore. And I don't think I'm prohibited from saying the guy had some mental problems. So significant mental problems that when he attempted to represent himself and fire his attorney, the court had legitimate concern about whether it was appropriate to let somebody represent themselves who was so clearly not, I mean, I don't want to say competent, but who was so clearly acting not in his own best interest, right? So we've got a guy charged with a really serious crime who knows nothing about the law and is suffering from a mental illness. And he's like, no, nah, I don't need a lawyer's help. I'm going to do all this by myself. It sounds like a terrible idea, right? Yeah. Everyone in the courtroom except the defendant knew it was a terrible idea. And it was such a bad idea that I think the judge was kind of like, I don't think I'm going to let you do that. The trouble is, the U.S. Supreme Court has previously said that everyone has the right to represent themselves. Feretta versus California. If you want to fire your attorney and, and represent yourself and direct your own defense, you can do that. Right? So they were up against these sort of competing interests where, on the one hand, the judge is like, it is clearly not in the best interest of justice or you for you to represent yourself, even though you want to. But on the other hand, everyone has this, right? <laughs> You have the right to and be dumb and make dumb decisions. You you do when it comes to your lawyer. Yeah, and that's what the U.S. Supreme Court basically said in Feretta. It was like, I mean, this is, this isn't, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, they didn't actually say this in Feretta, but 
you know, the, the subtext is this is a terrible idea, but if you want to do terrible I- things that are terrible ideas, okay. Um, so anyway, that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think the guy's name was Robinson. I, I can't remember for sure, though. I could be wrong about that. The irony is I don't even remember what the Supreme Court ruled. <laughs> I think they said it was okay to make him take a lawyer, I think, because they didn't send it back for a new trial. But I could be wrong about that, too. It was so long ago. It seems like a lifetime ago that I was a prosecutor, even though it's only been about five and a half years. Different world now, Jake. Yeah. Yeah, very different. So how long does the appeal process usually take? Months, potentially years, depending on how far you go. Yeah. Like that case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, that was probably more than five years to get there. Maybe even 10. It was a long time. The last appeal I did, I think it went on for mm, six to eight months, maybe even a little longer. Um, and they got the transcript done really fast, but, uh, I also had, you know, some, some family problems in there. I think my dad passed away right in the middle of me doing that appeal. So it slowed me down a lot and it slowed the process down a lot, unfortunately. Now, what is the difference between an appeal that we've just talked about and post-conviction relief? We're talking about a direct appeal, a traditional appeal, what what most people think of, which is appealing to a higher court. Post-conviction relief is is a type of appeal, essentially, but you go back to the trial court. And uh, there are special rules that cover this type of procedure. And um, there's very limited scope of what you can challenge in a post-conviction And Jake, I think you mentioned like this would be a vehicle to submit new evidence. Yes. So uh, two of the more popular avenues for people who seek post-conviction relief are ineffective assistance of counsel and newly discovered evidence. So there are some occasions where if you discover new facts about your case after the trial um, that weren't available to you, when the trial happened, you can present that evidence, argue that it makes, it undermines the confidence in your conviction and that the court ought to overturn your conviction. It is not just simply enough to say, well, I have new evidence. The procedural hurdles are very high. It has to be newly discovered, not available to you, that your attorney did a diligent search for it and didn't find it. Um, so there are, and, and there are several other hurdles you have to jump before you can make that argument. But those are the two, two of the more popular arguments on post-conviction relief that, and I think prosecutorial misconduct is one that gets a little bit of publicity when that happens too. So from my understanding, the post-conviction relief option is at the trial court level, the same court that you appeared before the judge in or accepted a plea deal or, or went to trial in. Mm-hmm. Is there like a time limit for the post-conviction relief petitions? No, I think you just have to be still serving the sentence. Um, You know, you can only file once and you couldn't have waived whatever grounds through your direct appeal. But uh, there's not there's not a hard time limit like on a direct appeal. Yeah, there's not a hard time limit. There are, I think, some, there is some case law out there regarding what's known as the doctrine of latches, which is a cool, uh, cool Latin term, I think, that uh, means something. I don't know what the hell it means. I'm going to be honest with you. Where the state can argue that you've waited too long to raise your PCR request. 
I think it has to do with sort of how long anyone would reasonably be expected to keep a file around. Um, so I don't think, for example, you can come back like 30 or 40 years into your life sentence and say, well, now something's messed, something was messed up. You guys need to undo all this. Like at that point, I think the court is going to say, well, look, you, you waited too long to do this. We don't have your file anymore, man. We don't even, we don't remember what was going on with your case. We're not going to look at it. But I don't know what the specifics are on latches because I haven't, I haven't dealt with that issue in a long time. Um, but I, I think it is out there. So there's these stories every now and then about someone that was uh, incarcerated for years, maybe even dozens of years, and the new evidence came forward proving their innocence. Like, how do they get there? Is that through post-conviction relief and appeal? Like, how do they get there? Well, it, it depends on where they were convicted. You know, typically criminal cases, they all, for the defendant, they end in sort of the same place, right? Uh, if you go to trial, you lose, you get prison, you go to prison. But how it gets there is very different depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the rules of that jurisdiction. In Indiana, and I think typically when, when convictions get overturned like that after years and years, and years it's usually because of DNA, um, advances in DNA evidence continue to happen. It continues to create situations where if the old samples are still around, people can be exonerated based on those samples. And in that case, usually the state agrees to let them go and doesn't contest you know, a PCR or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it just depends on the jurisdiction and what court you were convicted in, how it gets there. There are several, I think, not-for-profit agencies that sort of do that sort of DNA review, and uh, I think they're relatively easy to get a hold of. So if you if you have one of those situations, you just figure it out and, and write them a letter probably, and, and then they go from there. And Cassie, did you say that you can only file for post-conviction relief once yeah you can't file they call them successive motions um without special permission from the court of appeals yeah you can only file once so you better get it right the first time yeah the permission actually comes from the indiana supreme court you have to go to the indiana supreme court and ask them for permission and it happens every now and then but it doesn't it's another procedural hurdle you have to jump through and you're a lot better off if you avoid having to try that well, and this is where the attorney, important to have a good attorney. Um, as Jake previously mentioned at the trial level, if your trial attorney doesn't object appropriately, you could waive issues for appeal. Um, but then if you're trying to do your appeal, you're stuck with what you do. And a lot of times when people are calling, inquiring about appeals, they're, you know, challenging, you know, maybe the aggressiveness of a cross-examination of, of an attorney or, you know, contact of you know closing argument or you know as as Jake mentioned before you know maybe um, you know did they look for certain evidence um, and as a layperson you don't understand relevance you don't and you know the fact that a different attorney would have cross-examined the key witness in your case di- differently doesn't make your attorney ineffective well if you go on your own the wrong challenges maybe an attorney looked there and be like well there were some problems but you waived all those because you went with your unknowledgeable challenges and now it's all gone 
Yeah. And just, just so you understand, it, you may be sitting there thinking right now, what do you mean? I don't understand relevance. I know what that word means. It means <laughs> what's important. And, and this is what's important. But legally, and I think I talked about this maybe a couple of episodes ago about the terms of art, right? Um, this is a, a common legal term, terms of art. Relevance is a term of art. Um, unlike plea agreements, it was plea agreements that we were talking about where I was like, you'd think that's a term of art, but it's not. It's just like, uh, it's an agreement and you're going to plead. But relevance does not mean the same thing within a legal, within a criminal case that it does to a random person walking down the street when you ask him what that word means, right? The, the normal Webster's dictionary definition means it's important. It matters to the thing, right? But legal relevance in a criminal case, very different. All sorts of things that you might think are important will never be relevant in a criminal case. For example, the defendant's criminal history, right? A lot of people think, well, you know, he's got like six prior convictions and the jury's going to know about that, so I'm sure they'll convict him of this one too. No, the jury won't hear about his six prior felony convictions. Uh, the state is not allowed to present that because it's not relevant to whether he did or did not commit the crime. So even though you might think it's relevant because it says he's a good guy or a bad guy and what the trial is about is deciding whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, that's not what the trial is actually about, and things like that aren't relevant. And it is an extremely nuanced rule with weird zigzagging lines where sometimes a couple of things are relevant, but sometimes they aren't. For example, what I just said, the defendant's criminal history isn't relevant. That's true, unless the defendant testifies and if the convictions are crimes of dishonesty or moral turpitude, then some of them do get to come in, which matters when you're trying to decide whether to let your uh, client testify or not. But it's very complicated, and no one without a lot of study is going to be able to tell you whether certain things are admissible or inadmissible or relevant or irrelevant. And even then, the lawyers argue about it sometimes in the middle of the trial. Even lawyers with a lot of experience don't agree on what these things mean sometimes. And just so you know, sometimes the Court of Appeals doesn't agree either. You know, we've we've covered a couple of opinions where one of them dissented about one thing or another. That happens too. Even the lawyers don't agree. Even the judges don't always agree on what relevance is. That's one of those terms of art that's very complicated. And that's why it's important that you have a really good lawyer, somebody who can suss out those differences and know exactly where those lines are supposed to be drawn. So they know what they can present, they know what the state isn't supposed to present, and they know when and how to object and how to argue it. Yeah, that's one of those where I, I often tell people that it, this is a lot more than reading comprehension. People like this, they spent time in the library, they read, and you should not spend time in the library and pony up to a lawyer uh, to talk about uh, these, you know, these detailed issues any more than you would read a surgical textbook over a weekend and pony up to your surgeon but people seem to think that they can they can read some stuff I got it you know I understand English and that's not reality and now we are going to cut to a short commercial break and when we come back we will bring you the latest Florida Man news the update on Florida Man is brought to you by Waffle House 
There are over 300,000 different combinations of hash browns in at least three different sizes at Waffle House. Please do bring a second pair of pants, though. Need to study all night? Try buying a $1 cup of bottomless coffee and read for the next eight hours. They don't care. They're fine. They just want some company there. Oh, my dear Waffle House. The vegan options are massive. You can get milk. Oh, wait, no. You can get, um, crap. If you're a vegan, don't eat there, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, we are talking about Waffle House, Cassie. If you eat there, we tend to assume you don't care about your own survival, never mind other animals. Man, I was hoping Waffle House would give us some gift certificates for this glowing review, but it doesn't seem to be going very well. This message not actually brought to you by Waffle House. Now, Florida man was so dark last week, and I think for good reason. Newsbreak reports that shirtless Florida man traveled to Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) He took the week off. He did to headbang Slayer's raining blood to slay Hurricane Laura. (laughs) Wait, he he tried to defeat a hurricane with hard rock? Yeah, he did. Dave Mustaine would be so proud. And this is not the first hurricane he has tried to do this to. Like, he does this every time a hurricane comes. Shirtless Florida man goes out and headbangs the Slayer. Okay, so I was picturing a John Cusack standing in the rain holding the boombox <laughs> over his head. Like, I'll get you. But okay, so he's just headbanging through the storm. Yes. But... Florida man made his way back to Florida this week, and he's making headlines. NBC2 in Florida reports that drunk Florida man crashed into a drive sober or get pulled over sign. (laughs) 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 But here's the thing. He... They were wrong, weren't they? They were wrong. Because he did not drive sober, (laughs) and he did not get pulled over. No. (laughs) He crashed, and then they just arrested him. They did. Florida man was arrested after the deputies found him near the turned over sign. And Florida man told the deputies he was on a phone with a friend and he hit something, but he was unsure what he hit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't a baby stroller, so that's good news. Yep. He failed his field sobriety test, blew over (laughs) twice the legal limit, and now he's facing DUI and property damage charges. Uh Yep. He'll have to pay restitution for the state to fix the sign. It's ridiculous how much those signs cost, by the way. It's probably like thousands of dollars. Good God. Now, Breaking 911 reports wild Florida man went on a rampage through a neighborhood and was fatally shot by a resident during a home invasion. The Polk County Sheriff's Office was notified of an occupied burglary and home invasion as it was occurring at 612 in the morning. When deputies arrived, they found Florida man incapacitated and bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, they began the life-saving measures, transport him to a hospital where he was pronounced deceased. No one else was injured. At this point in the investigation, all of the evidence indicates that the resident acted in self-defense. Yeah. And according to the preliminary investigation, Florida man has been in the area to purchase and use illegal drugs. He was driving a car accompanied by Florida woman. I don't know what happened to Florida woman um, after Florida man began swerving across the road and crashing into a chain link fence. He jumped out of his car, left Florida woman, ran to a school bus that had just picked up a child, 
and attempted to get in the school bus. At five or six in the morning? Yeah. This, uh, I'm already suspect of this entire police account. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but the bus Not driver. Guilty. Not the, guilty. <laughs> the bus driver refused to open the doors. She used a radio to call the dispatcher um, who alerted law enforcement. Florida man then jumped onto a car that was driving through the area and rolled off. And that driver pulled over and called 911. Mm-hmm. Florida man jumped on the hood of another passing car, breaking that windshield and fled. And the driver of that car said he was growling. <laughs> so th- this sounds like waking meth to me. That is exactly what they said. Like, it's, this sounds like meth. Yeah. It, it's not wake and bake. Because no, when you do that, you just sit down and watch SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I guess I, we need a different term because wake and meth. It's definitely AM meth or meth for the morning. Meth for the morning. Oh. How's that? Well, because if they're meth heads, they're, they probably didn't sleep. You know, they're probably up all night. You know, it's just meth in the morning. (laughs) Meth in the morning. (laughs) Well, the other thing. So, so I'm put, you know, I always put myself in here and I'll tell you if crazy meth man slid across the front of the hood of my car and didn't do any damage, I don't think I'd stop and call the police. I'd probably just go on with my day. (laughs) What if he stopped and growled? If he moved on, I probably again wouldn't stop i mean if i thought he was if i saw him going on to like attack someone else or something but if he just you know went on like a crazy person yeah yesterday i was leaving work and um i was at uh, i was on north delaware street and it wasn't it wasn't on michigan but it was somewhere near delaware and michigan it was definitely on delaware um in fact i think it might have been delaware and michigan delaware and michigan um i have the green light but some guy is just walking through the crosswalk out in front of me on the far side, right? So like about 30 yards away through the intersection, he's walking through that. And he is he's doing just an extremely profane looking dance, right? He's like jumping up and down and sort of humping the air and <laughs> making gestures with his hands that don't seem appropriate for uh, civilized society. And I mean, fortunately, he had all his clothes on, so I didn't have to worry about any of that. But he was just grinding on on the air <laughs> just just like i imagine elvis in the 50s with the hip thrusts except exaggerated to the point that everyone would have been like dude settle down like i mean just as hard as he could possibly air hump he's just just thrusting as he dances and he knows that I have the green light and he just stops in front of me and just starts like hump dancing, just humping the air in my direction at my car and laughing. And then he just does like a 180 in the air and does it in the other direction and then keeps bouncing and dancing off onto the sidewalk. And I'm like, I live in the city. This is what I sign up for, I guess. And continued on with my day. But uh, <laughs> um, so... It happens. It happens. It's not just Florida. I I just wouldn't call that a justification to uh, call out emergency law enforcement. That's true. Um, I do. Your story does um, make me think of Frito from Idiocracy with the aggressive (laughs) air humping. That was. It was. It was worse than like Frito. It was. um, It was just. It was preposterous. Like. 
Uh, I didn't know what to say. I I just kind of just stared at him like, what is happening to me? Are you sure he wasn't making a TikTok? Because there's this thing on TikTok right now where aggressive air humping is like this trend. I, I didn't see anyone filming. Okay. Um, or listen to me talking like a freaking 40-something-year-old. I didn't see anybody <laughs> recording it on their phone. They don't use film. Um, but I, it's possible. I don't know. He was... He was very excited, but it it also, you know, it wasn't a kid, you know, that's like TikToks for like kids and people in their thirties, I guess. I but don't then know. Then the pandemic happened and a whole bunch of other people got on TikTok. Oh, did they? Chased away the kids. Oh, okay. So TikTok is like Facebook from five years ago now. Yep. Is, as soon as we, you and I start thinking about downloading TikTok, it's dead. It means it's dead. <laughs> right. So as soon as we figure out, yeah, it's over. Like once then, like once, yeah, like yeah. The, what we, exactly what we did to Facebook. Right. Because we are too old, too old to be cool. That's okay. So back to growling Florida man. Yeah, yeah. What else did he do? Yeah, so after he um, broke the windshield on the car that he hopped on and was growling at the driver, he ran into a home that was occupied by a nine-year-old child, um, some adults, and grandparents. Mm -hmm. Florida man broke in through a long glass panel in the house's front door. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the father of the home grabbed his firearm. Yep, time to die of lead poisoning. He tried to get crazy Florida man to leave, but uh, instead Florida man picked up a piece of glass from the panel and threw it, which made <laughs> made the homeowner shoot him. Well, yeah. Fatally yeah. kill him. Yeah, that doesn't... It, assuming all those facts are true, that uh, the, the only crime committed, no no charges are getting filed against anyone in this scenario. And that's all the time we have for today. All right. Thanks, Terry. And uh, thank you for listening to Tales from the Brown Desk, dear listener. Please remember, while we may discuss legal issues and provide information regarding the law to our listeners, we do not intend to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Our advice may not be applicable to some legal issues. Please consult with an attorney you have hired to review your legal situation before you attempt to apply the things we have said to your case. Tales from the Brown Desk is produced by Rigney Law and edited by Terry Ohm. You can ask us questions, just email Terry at T-E-R-I at RigneyLawIndy.com and entitle your email podcast question, and we'll read it on our next podcast. Unless we start getting too many questions, but we never do. But if we did, we would just read the good ones. Buzzsprout says we now have 25 listeners. Don't call it a comeback, baby. We've been here for weeks uh, our one listener in France still loves us. Our newest fans are in Nicaragua. Nicaraguans are listening. I don't know why. And I said plural because our last five episodes have been downloaded more than five times in Nicaragua, which means more than like they must have got one of their friends to listen to. Um, Ola, thanks for listening. <sighs> the attorneys at Rigney Law do not comment on their current pending cases. Nothing we've said in this podcast is a comment on a case we're currently working on, even if your name is Chad, or if you used to serve me coffee late at night in the Waffle House in Franklin, Indiana. Hasta luego!